We have a chance now to open our Bibles, and uh, we're going to be speaking primarily today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We spend a lot of time throughout the year talking about Jesus' death and how necessary that was. He was our substitute. We all have incurred the death penalty for our sins, and he took our place uh, on the cross. So uh, we tend not to talk so much about his resurrection. We do, but maybe not quite as much. But you know what? His resurrection from the dead was just as important as his death on the cross. He's not a dead savior. He's alive. He's no longer on the cross. He rose from his tomb. And uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, and he also talks about not only Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but our resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus set an example for us as to what will eventually happen to us. And I think it's important that we read this and that we study it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, understand that this book that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth was written about 22 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 22 years later. So that would be about as long as, in our case, if we were talking about the tragedy with 9-11, with the planes crashing into the Trade Center in New York and crashing into uh, the Pentagon and so on. It doesn't seem like that was that long ago, but it was 22 years ago. Can you believe that? 9-11? And we still remember it pretty vividly, don't we? Maybe we were watching it on TV or listening about it on the radio, and uh, we saw so many videos about it that the memory is still fresh in our mind. Well, the memory of Jesus' death and resurrection was still fresh in the mind of all the people that Paul was writing to in this letter. So he talks about Jesus' death and resurrection here in chapter, 5, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Let's begin reading. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So we all as Christians stand on the gospel. It's the basis. It's the foundation of our belief, isn't it? We talk about it a lot, and we should. By this gospel, you are saved, verse 2, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So that's why we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection a lot. <laughs> We need to be continually reminded of it, and we have to hold firmly to what we believe. Now in verse 3, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, Apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. So I don't think this particular event was recorded in the book of Acts or 
later, later on in the Gospels, but it happened. He tells us about an event where Jesus, post-resurrection, got together with a huge crowd of 500 people, men and women, and they all saw him and knew that he died, and they're now knowing and, and seeing perhaps for the first time that he rose from the dead. I'm sure he was there talking to them, interacting with them. So he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, his brother, half-brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What does Paul mean by that? Well, here he is serving the church as an apostle, but he wasn't a part of the original 12. He came along later. Remember in the book of Acts where the church was being persecuted after Jesus had ascended to heaven, and he was a Jew, a Pharisee, persecuting the church. And then one day he got knocked off his horse by a blinding flash and heard the voice of Jesus from that point forward. So Paul always felt like he didn't deserve to be numbered amongst the original apostles. He wasn't there from the beginning. He didn't walk for three and a half years with the Lord during his earthly ministry. So that's why he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed, the gospel. So, Jesus' death and resurrection form the foundation of the gospel and the foundation of our faith. And notice Paul takes time here to mention so many eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. So it wasn't just a made-up story. It wasn't just a fairy tale of some kind, fiction. But Jesus rose from the dead and so many people witnessed him. Now notice Jesus didn't take time to appear to any important rulers or historians or things like that. In fact, I think he went out of his way to avoid meeting people like that because he wants us to have faith. So you won't find Jesus' resurrection from the dead explained clearly in historic accounts. In fact, hold your place and turn back here to Matthew 28. You know what happened when Jesus rose from the dead? It says here, Matthew 28, When Jesus was buried, the guards were put on duty and the tomb was sealed, as we know. And uh, the next day after he rose from the body, uh, from the grave, uh, let's see, the guards reported what had happened and the 
authorities didn't want to believe it. So they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And uh, they didn't want anybody else to believe that either. So they bribed the guards to make up a story. You know, don't tell anybody what you saw about the angel coming and rolling away the, uh, the uh, door to the tomb. Tell them, anybody who wants to know, that really what happened was the apostles took his dead body and went and buried it someplace. So that's the story that was going around. And maybe that's why some people didn't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. You know, they heard the rumor that the apostles had stolen his body and buried it someplace else. So that's what a lot of people believed. So Jesus here, uh, Paul rather, is writing here in Corinthians to convince the people and to remind them of what really happened. Jesus did die on the cross, but he did rise from the dead. Okay, back here to 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. They were keeping communion the wrong way. They had a lot of involvement in what was going on in the culture of the city of Corinth. And some of them believed and was trying to spread the rumor that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, that the apostles just stole the body and buried it someplace else to give the impression that Jesus rose from the dead. But that's why he just took all that time to mention people who literally saw him alive after his death. So some people believe that there's no resurrection from the dead. He says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So what Paul is saying is, listen, this belief that we have of Jesus rising from the dead is vital for us to believe. Because if you don't think we're going to be raised from the dead in the future, as Scripture says, then Christ wasn't raised because he was the forerunner for us all. His rising from the dead is vitally important for all of us. Verse 15, more than that, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So, like I said, the resurrection from the dead of Jesus was meant to foreshadow the future resurrection of all the saints at Jesus' second coming. If this Christian faith was only meant for this physical life that we live, if there's no future for us, if there's no life after death, we're some of the most miserable people on, on earth, Paul is teaching here. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, the dead in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men and women. So our faith isn't just teaching us how to live 
in this physical life, and then when we die, we're dead. Forget it. It's over. No. We believe in a future life. We believe in a resurrection from the dead for each and every one of us. And we look to Jesus' example, how he died and rose from the dead, to show us and to remind us what will ultimately happen to us. It's a promise from God, okay? And that's what makes this life worthwhile, because we know there's a future beyond this life. Some people have very rough lives. They suffer a lot. Maybe they're living in poverty, whatever the case may be. It gives us hope to know that this life isn't the end of it, that there is a future life that we're looking to, that God has promised, and that's when we're going to receive our reward. That's what we're living for. We're not just living for this physical life today. He goes on to say in verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. The reason he uses this falling asleep is because when you die, that's kind of like what you look like, you know. You're, somebody might think this dead person is asleep and they kind of shake him and rouse him, but it's, it's a sleep that you don't wake up from. That's what death is. So he talks about the concept of first fruits. You know, if you are a gardener or if you are a farmer, when you plant in the springtime, Come harvest time, at least the beginning of harvest time, what comes up, the first crops that are ready to eat are called the first fruits. Now there's going to be a lot more, a greater harvest afterwards. And I know the time is coming soon in just a couple months where I make my way up to uh, White House Farm because that's when homegrown strawberries come on the scene. And they're the most delicious I don't like this stuff that they import in the stores from Florida. I don't think it tastes anything like the homegrown, locally grown produce that you find in, in farm stores. So I always look forward to that. And what it's saying here is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He was the first fruit. Now, all believers are going to be raised from the dead. That's the great harvest that comes later but he was the first one for it to happen to. He died and was raised from the dead. So he is the first fruits of a later coming great harvest of many, many, many people being raised from the dead. So again, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. So let me ask you a question. Who was the man who brought death into the world? Anybody? Adam. Adam, thank you. He was the first one to sin, along with his wife Eve. And you know what? There was no such thing as death before that sin in the Garden of Eden. But he brought sin. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to blame my sins on Adam because I've lived the same way in many respects that Adam did. Disobedient to God, rebellious, and so on. So I've brought my own death penalty upon myself. I don't have to put the blame on Adam. He sinned, I sinned, we all have sinned, okay? 
but he was the first one. So he walks, you know, he's got the reputation of being the one that brought sin and death into the world. So for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And that man is who? Jesus. Jesus. Yes. Okay. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, because we've all sinned, so in Christ all will be made alive. So get the point. Jesus had to rise from the dead because he set the tone, he set the example that we're all going to follow in his footsteps. We're all going to rise from the dead. He says in verse 23, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he returns, his second coming, those who belong to him will be raised from the dead. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Being under his feet means he has authority over them. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you see, death exists today. <laughs> you know, we all die. We've all had so many loved ones who have died. Death was the penalty for sin. And it's still hanging around. Death, mourning, suffering, loss. It still hangs around because it hasn't been completely removed yet. Although Jesus has done his work. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. The Father has put everything under Jesus' feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God the Father himself. So God the Father is not under Jesus' authority. Everything else is. This does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to God the Father who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus destroyed death. Because up until that point, everybody died and stayed dead. But here comes a man, the Son of God, who died and he came back to life. So he destroyed death. He demonstrated his authority over death. He proclaimed his power over it. And isn't that encouraging for us? Because we all know we're going to die someday if Jesus doesn't return first and we're going to go to our grave. But it's good to know, it's encouraging for us to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God that we've worshipped as our Savior, is the one who has control over death. And when the time comes, he is going to raise everybody from the dead back to life. He says in verse 29, well, let me, let me pause right there and talk about Jesus' authority over death. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10. See what some of the other gospel, uh, Bible writers have, have said about this subject. Jesus' authority over death. 2 Timothy 1.10. It says, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death 
and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we know through the gospel and what Jesus did on our behalf, when we die physically, that's not the end of it. That's not the end of it. In fact, I firmly believe that our spirit, as Jesus said to God the Father when he was on the cross, Father, I commit my spirit to you. Or as uh, the uh, martyr Stephen said in the book of Acts, as he was being stoned to death, Father, I commit my spirit to you. There's a spiritual aspect of us that even though the body dies and goes to the grave, this spirit goes to be with God. So in that sense, life doesn't end for us. There's something that continues on, us being with God, even though the physical body is dead now and goes to the grave. So Christ has destroyed death by his resurrection from the dead. That's why we celebrate this. And notice another scripture in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. Revelation 1 and verse 17, Jesus is describing himself here to uh, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. John says this, When I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And furthermore, he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. So what does that mean to hold the keys? Well, that means you're the one in charge. You're the one with authority. You know, I've got the keys to this building. So, you know, we come here, I open up the doors and lock everything. And then when I leave, I got to lock them up again because I've been given that authority by Pastor Chris. So if you have the keys of death and Hades, you've got authority as to who's resurrected from the dead, who ends up going to hell, and who ends up going to heaven. You've got all that authority. Jesus has been given all of that authority by the Father. So again, that's why he rose from the dead, to demonstrate his authority over death and Hades. Let's now go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Continue reading what Paul says here about Jesus' resurrection. Chapter 15, continuing on in verse 29. Verse 28 says, After he's taken authority over everything, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, God the Father, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Now there was a custom in the church at Corinth at this time that people felt if a loved one died without having accepted Jesus Christ, without being baptized, they felt that they could do that in their place which is not really a Christian doctrine, but it was part of their culture there in Corinth. They felt that they could do that. And Jesus is saying, okay, if there's no resurrection for the dead, 
What good is it for you to do this, to be baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? So the Bible's not teaching us that that's something we should do. It's describing what the people in Corinth were doing. It's not prescribing it for us to do. Verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? So Paul is saying, you know, as an apostle, along with all the other ministers, if there's no resurrection, why am I putting my life on the line every day, facing death from persecutors, death in traveling from church to church? What in the world am I doing this for if there's no resurrection? But of course, of course Paul believed that there was a resurrection, and he felt called to put his life on the line every hour. He says in verse 31, I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, you know, he was thrown into a, kind of a coliseum in Ephesus, tied up in the middle of the, the field out there, and then they released all the wild beasts. And miraculously, God closed the mouths of the wild beast, and Paul's life was spared. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? You know, if there's no resurrection and nothing to be concerned about, let's have the attitude, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's live for today if there's no resurrection. But there is a resurrection. And that's why we don't live that lifestyle, that crazy lifestyle. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So now he gets into an interesting discussion here of what our resurrection is going to be like. Because we're going to be resurrected. What is that going to be like? Well, God gives us a minimum amount of information on that. Verse 35, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? So we have questions like that, too. I wonder about that a lot. When resurrection time comes, what is that going to be like? Well, God gives us a minimum amount of information. It's like we're looking through a glass darkly, the scripture says, but he gives us just enough information. He says in verse 36, how foolish. What you plant does not come to life unless it dies. When you plant, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else. So what goes in the grave is not what's going to come out. What's going to come out is going to be something different. For example, if you've if you got a garden and you want some beautiful flowers, what are you going to plant? Little itty bitty seeds. You don't plant big tall flowers, you plant seeds. So what you plant, what's put in the grave is different from what will ultimately be. What you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has determined. To each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So God's got it all planned out. Don't worry. He knows exactly what we're going to look like in the resurrection. I heard somebody ask uh, on TV, they asked the question, 
what age are we going to be when we're resurrected? Don't worry about it. God's got it planned, and it's going to be a perfect plan. We're all going to be happy with the outcome. He says in verse 39, all flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. And you know that's true. When I eat a meal, my wife and I like fish. We eat a lot of fish, but we eat meat as well, beef and, you know, chicken and all those things. But it seems to me that when I eat fish, it's easier on my stomach. Have you ever noticed that? There's something about the flesh of fish that is very easily digestible. Now, I know that some people hate fish because it's kind of slippery and slimy, you know, after you cook it. But I find fish very digestible. Now, if I eat a steak, a thick steak, which I do, do, don't do very often, that just weighs on my stomach. I can't eat steak, especially later, you know, in the evening, or I'll try to go to bed. <laughs> my stomach will be trying to deal with this big steak that I ate. So it's true. All these animals have different kinds of flesh. Verse 40 there are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. What is the sun? It's gas. It's, yeah, it's in the form of a, a ball, but it's basically gas. And what is the moon? Well, the moon is kind of like Earth, except it's totally barren, nothing growing there. It's more like a planet as we know it. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So God is going to take your perishable, weak, dishonorable, and sinful body, what the Bible calls a natural body, and he's going to make it into an imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. That's the change that's going to take place, okay? So I think a lot of us are very happy that this body that we're dealing with now that is getting old and weak, a lot of pain, arthritis, we can't do what we used to do, it's hard to get out of bed some days. I'm personally very glad that that's not the body I'm gonna have in the resurrection. <laughs> it's gonna to be totally different, okay? It's gonna be better. Now a spiritual body does not necessarily mean that it's not gonna have material to it. You know, these bodies, you can feel it. You can shake hands with somebody. It's a material body. When we get our spiritual body, it seems that there's also going to be material to it. Okay, but it's going to be different. It's going to be radically different. We remember the story of Doubting Thomas. You remember him? He was not around when Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't see Jesus like the other apostles did. So he made the statement, let's turn to John 20. He was not going to believe Jesus rose from the dead until he could literally see and feel Jesus.
John 20, verse 24, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Now, how could he get in if the doors were locked? Well, the new body that he has, the spiritual body, doors don't stop you. He came through the wall or the door. He's got a spiritual body now that he's resurrected from the dead, the kind we're going to have. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. So our spiritual body that we're going to have, like Jesus was when he rose from the dead, is going to have some substance to it. We're going to have hands that people can you know, feel. Someday we're going to look at Jesus' body and see the hands that are, the holes that are still in his hands. He's carrying that about as a witness to what he did on our behalf. Perhaps the scar of a, a hole in his side. So that kind of gives us an idea of what our spiritual body is going to be like. We'll still be able to shake hands or to hug. I think that's kind of cool. Let's turn to Philippians 3 and verse 21. I think just the thought of a pain-free body really gets me excited. <laughs> Philippians 3, verse 21. Talking about Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So when Jesus rose from the dead, there's not a whole lot of information, but what do you see him doing? Going in and talking to the disciples. Uh, letting Thomas stick his finger in the hole in his hand to prove that it's really Jesus, okay? There was a story too about Jesus. The disciples are out fishing and he's on the shore and what's he doing? He's cooking a meal for them. Grilling up some fish on the, on the beach so that when they're done fishing, they come in and all enjoy a meal together. You mean to tell me we'll be able to eat with our resurrected body if we want to? We sure can. Enjoy food as a resurrected Christian with God. So back here one last time to 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to have a glorious body like Jesus' glorious body. So we believe that he rose from the dead we kind of get a glimpse of what we're going to be like at that time. Let's pick up the, the story here in verse 44. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven, Jesus. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's us. 
Our citizenship is in heaven, so we're like Jesus. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That's when Jesus returns. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, our bodies have been transformed, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Kind of mocking death. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Well, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm in your faith. We believe that Jesus died. We believe that he rose again, setting an example for us of what life is going to be like at the time of the resurrection. Let nothing move you. Don't be troubled. Don't doubt. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep studying his word. And ask God for more faith to believe it. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what an encouraging message. He's trying to straighten out the uh, Corinthians who don't even believe that there's a resurrection from the dead. And didn't believe that uh, Jesus rose from the dead because they swallowed the story that was going about that somehow his disciples stole the body out of the tomb and buried it someplace secret. That didn't happen. He tells us all these people who saw Jesus after his resurrection from the dead. And I'm sure Paul's attitude would have been, if you don't believe me, go to Jerusalem. Talk to some of those people that were there who saw Jesus and heard him speak. There's plenty of them still alive at that time, he said. If you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're eyewitnesses. So it's an encouraging message for us. It not only talks about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, how he conquered death, how he now has the keys to death and Hades. He's in control of everybody's life from that uh, perspective. And also he talked about our resurrection. So it's gonna be like Jesus when he rose from the dead. People are gonna be able to know you, recognize you. There's gonna be a certain material substance to our spiritual bodies and all the pain's gonna be gone. All the suffering will be gone. Sin will be gone when Jesus returns because he's going to wipe it out and just imagine what life is going to be like forever, forever. Not just 70 years or 60 years or, or, or fewer years than that. Eternally dwelling with God, it's going to be great. Keep your focus on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of encouragement today. Jesus' resurrection from the dead reminds us of what's going to happen to us. He is the first fruit. He set the pattern for us. He was the pioneer to show us what life after death is going to be like. And it's good news. And Father, you have devised such a plan that is all good. 
There's no negative aspects of that life for us in the future. So help us to remember that this life, this physical life is just temporary. The suffering, the pain is just temporary. Jesus has come to wipe it all out. He forgave our sins. He has prepared for us new bodies that we will enjoy forever. So thank you, Father. We love you very much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.